and it hits something solid and it bounces back. And for so many people, both those who are Christians who've been bought by the blood of Christ and those who are unbelievers, for so many people, one of the joys of this holiday season is that somehow, some way, it holds a promise for us that no matter how bad things are, no matter how horrific we have gone with straying off after our own ways, somehow, some way, there is going to be a setting aright of all human history. Every person I talk to, sure, we enjoy the giving of gifts, we enjoy spending time with family, but there is something about this holiday that all of us intuitively sense speaks to something deeper. I mean, come on, it's winter. We're celebrating winter? No, surely there's more to it than that. And of course, as Christians, we string up lights in order to shine a light into the darkest time of the year. Because that's the essence of this holiday. I wonder how horrible it is for people who want things to be set right, but don't want Jesus Christ. I wonder where they are left, what that predicament must feel like. Knowing that there is an absolute right and knowing that there is an absolute wrong, knowing that this world is broken, seeing it every day, and yet having no way to resolve the conflict. I first encountered this as a young man when I was in grade three. I remember we were going to the cafeteria. There was an older girl that was in one of the upper grades that it was in between classes for her, and she was carrying her books, and there were some other girls that had come running along And we were on the sidewalk going in between buildings. It had been a rainy day. And on either side of the sidewalk was patches of mud and dirt. And these mean girls come along and they knocked these books out of this other girl's hand. And then they had pushed her down into the mud. And so here she is with all of her school supplies and her things. And she got pushed into the mud. I didn't really know this girl that well. But I remember looking at that situation thinking, how tragic is that? And so... Uh, Even though I would get in trouble for it later on, I got out of line, and I went, and I helped this girl uh, pick up her her things, and she was upset, and she was crying. I said, it's okay. It's all right. Uh, You know, I'll help you, and she, in a moment of frustration, she said, they always bully me. I'm sick of it. I wish things would be right. I wish they would get what they deserve, and being a Christian kid from a Christian home, I offered the only consolation any of us can offer, the only consolation that really ought to be necessary. I said to her, well, when Jesus comes, he'll make everything right. And I was absolutely shocked at the response. Oh, you don't believe in any of that nonsense, do you? To which I was flabbergasted, like I'm helping her pick up her books, like at least humor me, some poor little kid trying to help you out here. I mean, you know, and she said, there's no Jesus, there's no God, and those people will never get what comes to them. They'll never get what they deserve. And that was my first experience encountering someone who is truly without hope. The thing of this holiday season, the giving of gifts, the blessing of others, the receiving of what you don't deserve, which is good and right and beautiful, getting that something special. All of that finds its epitome in Jesus Christ. 
And so my response to that lady this morning, wherever she is, is that there is a God and that he has sent his son and that one day his son is coming again on some bright Christmas morning, yet future, yet distant. And he will make everything right. That's what the prophet Isaiah says to us this morning. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet Isaiah makes this statement, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah saw a word. God spoke to him in a supernatural way. It comes to him in the form of a vision, which he is now going to recount for Jerusalem. And this is a word of encouragement, which Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, doesn't really appear to be worthy of. We don't have exact dates, but Isaiah was called to this prophetic ministry uh, during the reign of Uzziah. We know the reign of Uzziah when he lived, when he died. And so we can, we can ascertain that probably somewhere around the year 740 B.C., Isaiah received his call to ministry. Somewhere in that general ballpark of time, he would have received this vision. And we know also that the Assyrians... The group of people which Isaiah is warning Israel about will come and invade around 701 or about 40 years after Isaiah receives his call to prophetic ministry. So somewhere between 740 and 701, somewhere in that period of time, Isaiah has this vision from the Lord. And he says to the nation of Israel, It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all all the nations shall flow to it, to this mountain. Now this, in this moment, if you're hearing Isaiah prophesy, if you're following his word, you've just experienced a train wreck. You have just been in a brutal car wreck. Because everything he's been saying in chapter 1, and everything he's about to continue saying in chapter 2 and onwards, is at total odds with what he has just said here. I mean, you have been in a train wreck and you're experiencing whiplash. Your neck is hurting because what Isaiah has said just now in this moment is totally different than what he has been saying. There is here, alluded to by the prophet Isaiah, a cataclysmic reversal. Just to give you some of the context, if you look back at chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 27. Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel, and he's prophesying against all of their rebellion, against all of their sinfulness against the Lord. And he makes a statement, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. So far, so good. But he takes it a step further, verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They're going to be taken away. He goes forward, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, like a garden without water. And the strong shall become as tinder, and his work as a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Isaiah is saying to the nation of Israel, because of your spiritual harlotry, Because you've been turning to every other God besides the one true God, there is a judgment that is coming. There is a reckoning that is coming. And of course, we know about 40 years after he made this prophecy, Israel is invaded by the Assyrians. 
This is the first of a series of invasions. This will be the first of a series of deportations in which ultimately the nation of Israel will be totally wiped out by the Babylonians who will come after the Syrians. And there will be a mass exodus, a mass exile in which they are taken off into captivity into Babylon. Isaiah is warning them that this judgment is coming. He mentions there, you'll notice, he says, uh, you shall be ashamed, verse 29, of the oaks that you have desired. This is a reference to the Astra. It's sort of like uh, totem poles within uh, Native American ideology, this idea that you can fashion or craft something that will embody a spirit or a power that is higher or greater than yourself. This is the idea that is held here by the Israelites. They are looking to carved graven images that they have set up on all the high hills around Jerusalem, and they have gone up on these high hills in order to worship these graven images, these false gods, gods that are taken from all of the surrounding nations. When you look at the city of Jerusalem and the hill that Jerusalem resides on, there are other hills around Jerusalem, even immediately right around Jerusalem, that are actually higher up than Jerusalem. There are lots of mountains throughout the world that are higher up than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is by no means the tallest mountain. And a part of the Israelite practice, although the temple is properly located in Jerusalem, part of the Israelite practice is to go up on the high places throughout the country. The high places. This idea that they could by going physically up onto the mountain, elevate themselves and therefore be closer to whatever pagan deity it is that they're worshiping. They could be closer to that deity and they could offer sacrifices to it. And so Isaiah is prophesying against that. He is condemning that. There's this weird break in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, but if you look back at verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, he goes right on to rejecting the people of Israel, to condemning them, to rebuking them. He says, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And so this rebuke continues. You have rebuke and rebuke, and in the midst of all of this, you have this statement that comes from the prophet Isaiah, which should result in a whiplash for all of us. You guys are engaging in sinfulness. You have departed from God. You're going to be judged. You guys have engaged in sinfulness. You have departed from God, and you're going to be judged. And then here, verse 2, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up. All those high places you go to to worship all of your pagan gods, all those high places you go to to engage in your spiritual harlotry, the prophet Isaiah says those places are going to come down and the mountain of the Lord, Zion, is going to be lifted up. Whiplash. Why would you do this for us, God? We've sinned against you. We've rebelled against you. You've just indicted us for all of these different practices that we're involved in. And yet in the midst of all that, you say, hey, I'm still doing a thing here. I'm still going to achieve the promises that I made to Abraham and Isaac and your forefathers. Even though you are to be judged, you will not be forsaken. 
even though you will be disciplined and chastised, you will not be utterly wiped out. Even though you go up to all those high mountains where you like to go to worship your false gods, I'm going to bring those mountains down. And I'm going to lift up the house of the Lord, Zion, Jerusalem. It's a poetic expression. But if you really stop to think about it, it can't happen unless something supernatural takes place first. And I'm not talking about some sort of amazing earthquake where mountains literally are crumbling down and the mountain of Jerusalem is literally being thrust up into the sky. That's really easy for the Lord to do. God can do that on any given day of the week. No, what the prophet Isaiah is alluding to here is something even more miraculous, something even more supernatural, which requires an even greater act of God's power. The people of Israel have to want to desire to worship the Lord on his mountain. Their hearts have to be changed so that they no longer go after any of these other mountaintops. They no longer go after any of these other false gods. In the midst of all of this condemnation, in the midst of all of this rebuke, Isaiah says, hey, I had a vision. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And you, Israel, you who like to go and copycat all of these other gods from all of these other nations, look at what he says here at the tail end of verse 2. All the other nations that you like to copycat, their false gods, they're all going to come to the mountain of the Lord. It says, all the nations shall flow to it. What a turnaround. What a complete reversal. Israel goes to all the other nations to worship their gods. And God says to Israel, I'm going to do a work here where you're going to stay put on your own hill, on your own mountain, the mountain of the Lord, and all the other nations are going to come here for a change rather than you going everywhere else. Talk about whiplash. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Judgment, judgment, judgment. I'm going to do something miraculous. What? I mean, you can feel it in your neck, just the unbelievable crank, the turn of, a for, of events, the changing of fortunes, the turnabout. But if we really stop to think about who God is, this shouldn't surprise us. We see this all throughout Scripture. God is the God of amazing and miraculous turnabouts, where the people deserve something, they should expect something, and what they deserve and should rightfully expect they don't get, and the unexpected, the unimaginable blessing is the thing that they ultimately end up with. If you stop to think about it, this is God's modus operandi all throughout the Bible. Starting with Abraham. You're going to have a child. I'm a hundred years old. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen. And guess what? Abraham does have a child. More than that, God promises him, you are going to be the father of many nations. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the beach and the stars in the heavens. He dies with only one son, Isaac. Well... It's awfully hard for a young man to find a wife living out in the midst of a caravan in the bush. How is this going to work? Abraham dies, and he doesn't fully understand how God is going to fulfill his promises. But before he dies, God supernaturally leads Isaac to his bride. And Isaac and his bride, they will give birth to a son after him. A couple of sons. They're going to have Jacob. And you know the name of the other boy, don't you? Absolutely. 
Now, which was first? I forget. That's right. I don't really forget. Now, who is supposed to uh, get the inheritance in ancient Near Eastern custom? The firstborn. Now, Jacob is the promised child, but Esau is the firstborn. And yet, through turnabout, through trickery and deception, Jacob is given the inheritance. Esau is cut out. And it goes on from there. Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, sold into slavery. Nothing good can come out of this situation, being sold into slavery into the hands of the Egyptians. And yet, God rescues Joseph out of his prison cell and establishes him as a prince over the nation of Egypt. And through Joseph, works deliverance and salvation for many, many of the peoples of the earth so that they don't die in the famine or in the, in the, as a result of the drought and the scarcity of food. And it's not just Joseph. Israel itself comes into captivity, becomes slaves in Egypt. He rescues them out of Egypt. He plants them in their own land. This goes on. David, the shepherd boy, the guy who's a nobody, the one that his own dad was just leave him out in the field. He's not going to be the king, and he brings all of his other sons. And yet it is David, the forgotten kid out in the field, that is anointed to become king of Israel. And on and on and on, down throughout all of the history of Israel, God delights in taking the impossible and turning it around so that you and I can see that whatever he says he's going to do, however impossible it appears, he is going to do it because nothing, absolutely nothing can stop God, including bringing a Savior from a virgin, the ultimate means of deliverance. This is ultimately who Isaiah is talking about here in this passage. You say, wait a minute, I didn't see that. Look more carefully. Verse 3, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. He may teach us his ways. Go ahead and underline that, teach. And that we may walk in his paths. Go ahead and underline that, walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, this is commandments from God, do this, don't do that, obey this, follow this instruction, don't do that, don't disobey this, don't go that other way. The law of God, and it goes on to say, out of Zion shall go forth the law of God and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Say, so that's all well and good, Pastor Josh, but we're talking about a law and we're talking about a word. Still don't see any evidence of the Messiah. Keep going. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations. Now, in this passage, Isaiah is using poetry, and he's using poetry, I dare say, better than most poets today. This is poetry of the Lord. This is inspired. Word and law go forth from Jerusalem, go forth from Zion. So far, so good. In the very next verse, he says, he Word and law now become an actual person. And he says what this person is going to do. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. This word, this law becomes a person. And this person is going to become a king. And this king is going to rule over every nation, over every people, over every tribe. And nobody's going to have an argument because this king, who is the word, who is the law, this king is going to say what is right and what is wrong. And guess what? Every nation is going to obey. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the chosen one. 
This is Jesus. This week, I'm on a little bit of a tangent, but this is a good moment to interject. This week, Joe O'Reilly and uh, John Dykstra came up here and they mounted this beautiful cross. The cross went up in like five minutes. The wreath that's hanging on it took like an hour and a half to position just right. <laughs> true story. Maybe a little bit of exaggeration, but true story. The cross went up fast. The wreath took forever. But this cross is a symbol of exactly how our king comes to do away with the war spirit. Look at the very next verse. Sorry, we're still in verse 4. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. Look at this. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The United Nations, an organization that was founded in 1945, October of 1945, in order to replace the defective League of Nations, the organization which preceded it, which was established after World War I. The United Nations was established following World War II in order to do, apparently, what the League of Nations was unable to do after World War I, the war to end all wars, as it was called, followed 20 years later by World War II. So the United Nations is our second effort at it. And the theme verse, the motto verse for the United Nations upon which this grand institution was established is this verse right here. It's inscribed on their building in New York. It says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. You tell me, how successful have they been? Not very. If you just watched the evening news just this last week, or if you just casually read through the morning paper just this last week, you undoubtedly read of terrorists still fighting in the Middle East. You undoubtedly read of Russia, Vladimir Putin, going for another sham of an election in order to continue his tyrannical rule in which he is pressuring his neighbors to the east, already invaded uh, the Ukraine, threatening other countries as well. You undoubtedly read of Kim Jong-un launching missiles, preparing further nuclear detonations. You undoubtedly read of wars and rumors of wars and these things continuing to happen. Without Jesus Christ, without the Messiah... There is no cure for the spirit of war. Try as we might. And billions upon billions of dollars have been spent and thousands upon thousands of man hours, hundreds of thousands, nay, millions of thousands of man hours have been spent on diplomacy and negotiation and debate and we are none the better for any of it. Money wasted, time lost. Because only one king can save us. And any effort to bring peace apart from the proclamation of the gospel is a flat-out rejection of this verse. Consider what the text is saying. There's going to come a Messiah. 
And when he comes, war will be ended. There will be no more war. They won't learn war anymore. They're going to beat their, their spears and their swords and the plow hooks and all this kind of stuff, all this beautiful language that Isaiah is using. They're going to do away with all of that stuff. But stop and consider what happens before they stop their warring. Go back to verse 3. Many peoples shall come, and they shall encourage each other. They'll say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. The solution to our problems can only be found when God the Messiah is the one doing the teaching. The answer to all of our conflicts only comes when Jesus is the arbiter. All other human agents will fall short. All other intermediaries will come up woefully lacking. And there is only one king, and he has promised to deliver us. But he starts first by inviting us to come to him and allow him to instruct us. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As we are gathered here this morning, undoubtedly, you and I, we're reading the newspaper, and we're thinking, man, we're living in some dark times. Not just around the world, but even here within Canada. We are being pressured and assaulted on every side from every possible, every conceivable, imaginable spiritual foe. And our answers and our solutions are not satisfying to a world that is bent on rebellion, that likes the war spirit. And there will be no cure to war so long as the world is permitted to continue its rebellion against the king. We cannot expect peace amongst brothers or amongst nations so long as others among us within the human race continue to persist in the rebellion against the true king. There will be no peace until the world is at peace with Jesus. Here's the catch. God wants to teach us. God wants to instruct us. He stands ready to meet us at any time. But it requires us humbling ourselves and going to him in order for him to teach us. Which is why the prophet Isaiah says in verse 5, house of Jacob. I mean, you can just hear the pleading almost. Oh, house of Jacob. House of Jacob. Come. Come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the invitation that's here for all of us today. You see, all of us live in this place where we feel we can take care of ourselves, where we have this idea in our minds that we're self-sufficient, that we don't need anyone or anything, and we're going to decide how to live life, and we're going we're to make sure we take care of number one, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Well, that is, that is the essence of the war spirit in its smallest form. And the only solution to that is if we would be 
willing to humble ourselves and to come in faith and dependence upon Christ. And do you know where it starts? Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He was born in a manger to a virgin. He lived life as a common man, born in the humblest of possible estates. He came in order to die. He came in order to bear the wrath of God. The first step of dependence, which is the hardest step, is where you and I have to acknowledge we can't save ourselves. We need Jesus to save us. And we have to recognize that his coming 2,000 years ago is absolutely essential. It is the only way any of us goes to heaven. His coming 2,000 years ago in order to die on the cross, in order to bear the penalty for our sins, in order to make it possible for us to be forgiven. Where justice and mercy meet. Where God's righteous standards are fulfilled, fulfilled by Christ. And as a result of that, he can extend forgiveness and mercy to us. The war spirit is cured first by surrendering to Jesus as king and trusting in what he did for you on the cross. The meaning of Christmas is this, that Jesus, in his coming and in his dying on the cross, has destroyed the power of death by destroying the spirit which says, I can take care of myself. This last week, I was at care group. And we were talking about the incarnation and what the incarnation meant. And uh, Tyler walked and reminded me of something that I had read many years ago, but had uh, since forgotten. But I want to share it with you all now. Jesus must be your Savior. Because without Jesus, you're coming to a train wreck. Jesus is the only one that can set you straight. And if you accept him as your Lord and your Savior, though you will experience a shadow in this life, you will be set free from the power of death. A number of years ago, there was a pastor, 10th Presbyterian, Dr. Barnhouse. And his wife died. And he and his six-year-old daughter were really struggling and grieving the loss of his wife, her mother. Dr. Barnhouse was struggling with his own individual grief, but he was also struggling with how to appropriately comfort and encourage his daughter that she could go on and live in spite of the fact that she'd lost her mother. And he had a real difficult time working through it. But one day, as he and his daughter were standing on a busy street corner, at a downtown intersection waiting for the light to change so that they could cross the street. There was suddenly a very large truck that sped by unexpectedly, and it briefly blocked out the sun, and it made a huge, loud noise. And, of course, the daughter was incredibly, incredibly terrified and scared. And Dr. Barnhouse scooped her up and picked her up. And in that moment, he had a flash of genius that I'm sure was from the Spirit. And comforting her, he said, When you saw that truck pass, it scared you. But let me ask you a question. Had you rather be struck by the truck 
Or would you rather be struck by the shadow of the truck? It didn't take her long to reply. Well, the shadow of the truck, of course. And he went on to explain. When your mother died, she was only hit by the shadow of death. Because Jesus was hit by the truck. That's the meaning of this text. Jesus comes. He's born. He lives. And he's going to make an end to the spirit of war. He's going to do away with death. There is a coming Christmas morning, the likes of which you and I can hardly imagine. But it starts with him bearing the full weight, the full brunt of everything you and I have unleashed in this world. So that what you and I experience is but a shadow. And so we enter into the winter season, the season of shadows, holding up the light of Christ. Because of him, we'll never taste the truck, just the shadow. And this is the message we need to take to the ends of the earth. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. We thank you, Father, for this shadow. Lord, none of us like living in the shadow of darkness that surrounds us on every side. But we know because of your son, it is but a shadow. And for those who have hoped in him, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, we have been delivered from the full weight of our sin, from the full burden of destruction that is coming on this world. And so, Lord, as your people gather this morning to worship you, as we prepare even now to partake of communion, if there are any here who are still living under the threat of being hit by that truck, by being hit by the weight of the judgment of their own sin, I pray you'd open their eyes to see their need for you, to step out from that judgment and to step into the light of your people. God, I pray if there are any here who don't know you this morning, that the word of Isaiah 2.5 would come to them, that they would hear your invitation. Come, oh Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And I pray that they would come. God, we ask that you'd work among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated. Our kids are making their way in this morning for communion, and uh, it is that time in which we are going to be celebrating together the oneness that we have in Christ. And so I'd like to invite the deacons, if they would, to please join me up here at the front. Thank you, gentlemen. You may be seated. Our ability to even celebrate this special occasion, this this holy rite of communion, is given to us only because Jesus Christ was born and that he came in the flesh and dwelt among us and that we, as the Apostle John says, we have beheld his glory. A part of beholding the glory of God is recognizing that he sent his son to die on the cross in order to forgive us of our sins, in order to reconcile us with him, and in that process, to reconcile us with each other. And communion is a celebration of that reconciliation in which we come together as a church family and we say to each other through our partaking of this bread and this cup, I belong to you and you belong to me because... We both belonged first to him through what he did on the cross. And so we'd like to invite our children in. If you're here with us and you're a visitor this morning, just want to explain to you, we'd like to invite our children in because we absolutely want them to observe us partaking of communion. We want them to be puzzled by it. We want them to observe it and ask questions and to say, Mom, Dad, why do you do that? Why are you partaking of communion? And we want you to know that your children may not partake of communion. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have not surrendered your life to him by faith and have followed him in obedience by baptism, this is not for you. We don't mean to be exclusive. We're not meaning to isolate anyone here or to separate anyone out. We would love for all of you to partake of this special, special occasion. However, this does not belong to us. This belongs to our Lord. And his instructions are quite clear a profession of faith in Christ followed by obedience and baptism is a prerequisite to celebrating your union with Christ and therefore, and therefore as a result of that, your union with each other. And so your children are here and we want them to observe this. And we want them to ask questions and we want you to use this, this special occasion as a teaching opportunity in order to teach your children about the faith. But please remember, this is not for them or for any of you who have not first surrendered to Jesus Christ in faith. We come to partake of communion this morning at Christmas season. And I'm reminded of these words from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Undoubtedly, boys and girls, as you are here this morning, you are waiting for Christmas to open presents, to open gifts. Kids, are you waiting for that? It's okay. You can say, yay, I'm waiting for that. You don't have to be somber and quiet. How many of you kids are excited for opening gifts on Christmas morning? Well, I am. I don't know about you guys. I am. As we partake of communion, it's important to remember that Jesus is waiting to open a gift as well. And he doesn't get to open it on Christmas morning. He's waiting for that moment when he returns to open his Christmas gift. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, as they were eating, it says, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, truly, I say to you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And so as you're opening Christmas gifts here on Christmas morning in just a week's time, I want you to be reminded of the fact that as you have waited so long and so patiently to get to Christmas morning, there is a Savior in heaven who is waiting patiently for us.